Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Politics. I'm your host, Caleb Dreisman. I'm also the podcast director at WRBB Radio, and I'm sitting down today with Thomas Ricino. He's a professor at Northeastern University studying urban dynamics and uh, urban development of suburbs and cities. He teaches several classes, um, and he was actually my professor for a dialogue in Japan where we went and studied how Tokyo grew. And uh, I'm actually I'm very excited to see you again, Thomas, uh, albeit over Zoom. Yeah, great Professor. to be here today. Thanks for having me. So as we're recording this, it is November 6, 2020. So we are uh, just a few days after an election that is still not concluded. It has had the actually the highest voter turnout in 120 years, which is very impressive. But one of the things that we're noticing these days is obviously like partisanship is way higher than it used to be. And it seems like the chances for an American to be living next to someone who has a different political view or a different is a different type of person than they are in most aspects is getting smaller and smaller by the day. And I, what, something we're sort of hearing a lot about is in the buildup to this election was sort of movement between the cities and the suburbs. We've got Trump was making comments about bad people coming to the suburbs and suburbs being ruined and all this sort of questioning about who is living where and what that means for the overall quality of life for those people. And obviously, you've done a lot of research on this. And I kind of want to take us back to maybe not a full history, but a bit of a preview of what this term that's been coming up recently, which is white flight. What is that? And what does it exactly mean? Great. Thanks. This is a great question. Timely, just as you know, just a couple of days after the election. Happy to reflect on that as our conversation evolves too. But why don't we take a step back and think about what white flight is? You know, white flight is essentially, it's, it's, it's the movement of people, but it's the movement of people based on characteristics, racial and ethnic characteristics. And typically flight refers to sort of the movement out and white refers to the, the, the race of the people moving. And so, you know, in real simple terms, if we define white flight, it's the movement of white people outside of cities to the areas on the fringe, which we tend to now think about as, as suburbs. So how did it start? Well, it, you know, I think that the frame here is to remember that we live in a very big country spatially. 50 states, lots of land, and that's meant that, you know, our population has grown over time. But if we go back to Civil War days, we were a divided country, and with that came, you know, the history and legacy of moving forward from slavery. That meant that our country post-slavery and during the Reconstruction, there was something called the Great Migration, where some six million freed slaves and then their descendants moved from southern, usually southern rural areas north north to cities like Charlotte, Baltimore, Philadelphia, Chicago, Pittsburgh, what we now think of today as the Rust Belt. And that's where jobs were. Industry was growing. And that first big, large migration meant that we had a whole new population of residents in big cities. And for the first time, big cities in the U.S. had a large black population. And so anytime you bring new people in to a community, lots of different social processes happen. There's what we call economic integration, social integration, cultural integration. At times, tensions can arise. And so really for the next century, we saw many different class and race-based tensions in, in, in large cities. Um, and one of them was the tension over the rights of black Americans versus white Americans. And so that, those tensions ultimately were the foundation for the civil rights movement, which then led to many different transformations of our cities. But one consequence of this very brief history I've now encapsulated in the past two minutes here 
is that one of the consequences has been white people leaving cities and moving to suburbs. Now, that, that's, a, that's just sort of a brief overview, I think, and a good historical background to think about when we talk about white flight today, the 20th century, and what that means. And that takes on a very different context, too, because we need to think about legislation, public policy, how social movements have evolved, which all have influenced uh, white flight today. Wow, very impressive condensing that history down. So that is what white flight is, but, and obviously, you know, it's easy to just sort of look at it and be like, oh, yeah, white people leaving the cities and just basically fleeing is not great. But what are the actual effects of that? Like, if I'm living in a suburb that is now 90% white, or I'm living outside of somewhere that is just, it's not racially diverse at all, what are the actual effects that are going to show up in, you know, your policies or your, um, or your just day to day life? Sure. I think a, a good starting point is to reflect on the role that public policy and many different federal laws have played in, in shaping the ability to have somewhere else to move. And that's really the birth of the suburbs in the U.S. If we think about, you know, white flight, but, you know, white people leaving cities. Well, if they did not have a place to move to, they may not have fled, if you will. Beginning in the 1930s, a whole variety of, largely speaking, federal housing policies encouraged the construction of the suburbs. Keep in mind, cities in the 1930s were vibrant places. They were integrated racially, ethnically, and by class. They were industrial powerhouses. We were sort of living in the heyday of, of all the, the, the economic successes of the great industrial revolution. That created jobs, that attracted millions and millions of immigrants to settle in cities. But what that meant was that cities were, were crowded, cities were dirty. We did not yet have good sanitation, we did not have good housing codes. So anybody that had resources, and back then it was just the very elite that had access to buy land right outside of the city. That's in the old British term, we called them the landed gentry. It's actually where gentrification comes from, because it's, it's gentry meaning people and people who had land and landowners. Um, those were very, very wealthy. But the idea was born out of the Great Depression that there's a lot of land. That's why I mentioned we have a big country. A lot of land right outside of our major urban centers, all up and down, you know, both the East Coast and then later the Midwest and the West Coast. And that land, if we opened up a great book called Opening Up the Suburbs by Anthony Downs, recounts sort of the cultural history of all of the thinking we did as a country to use the land just outside of cities as a new place to live and to then relieve the pressure of overcrowding in large central cities. And so at that point, the federal government really took the lead in, in creating public policies to really legislate the American dream. That is the birth of home ownership, and that's done in large part by government policies that facilitate the purchase of land, facilitate builders to go in and do subdivisions in, in cities. If we think about the, uh, a real classic example, Levittown on Long Island outside of New York, later Levittown, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, uh, the mass production of housing units meant that the ability to have a new place called home in the suburbs was, was becoming a reality. Uh, but that reality, though, was only a reality for certain people. And I say certain people because back then, one had to be in, in large, I'm generalizing here this, this long history, but it was open to white Americans. It was open to married couples. 
and then later married couples who wanted to have kids. And so by that, we allowed for the financing of new houses. The government got into the business of taking the risk out of lending from banks. The mortgage is born, if you will, the 30-year mortgage where you could make a significant purchase in your life and, and amortize it over the course of 30 years. Government, through laws, took on the risk of lending. And so that actually provided a really nice opportunity for some Americans. And that's sort of the 30s and 40s. That's that history there. But then when you go and look post-World War II, another boom happened. Uh, that was the baby boom. Uh, demographically, we, we saw, you know, 16 million World War II vets come home. What did they do? They got married, they had kids, and they bought a house in the suburbs. That was all financed and made possible by the Federal Housing Administration, free down payments. And eventually we see a new generation of suburbanites create wealth through public policies. And so again, it was only open to the white Americans at that point. And, you know, the conditions in central cities continued to deteriorate. As, as, as white Americans left the city to go to the suburbs, they vote with their feet and they leave, their, they leave with their resources, their tax base. And who's left behind? People left behind in the city generally were people of color, generally of less economic means, and uh, the burden to operate a large urban government with a diminished tax base over time became a downward spiral. The history of exclusion of the suburbs is an important theme when we look at the history of white flight. That's interesting because I, I feel like you definitely touched on things that certainly myself and I I'm, people I know have considered to just be a societal norm. I mean, you've got people who are like, yeah, of course, you know, you get older, you get married, you get kids and you go to the suburbs, you go buy a house, have a golden retriever, you know, get a grill out there. But I never even knew that that was something that was um, supported and even enforced maybe by legislation. I mean, that's, you are getting a massive monetary benefit by being allowed to do that. And again, uh, it, you know, there's a rich history too on, on the impact this has had on immigrants and black and Latino families if we go back, you know, urban areas, uh, there's a whole history of redlining where the government created what they called residential security maps. And literally they drew lines around neighborhoods or and this is in big cities in, in the 30s. You know, red neighborhoods were the worst and most risky neighborhoods. Those were the black neighborhoods. There were also purple, brown, all sorts of different colors, if you will, that the housing authority used to identify the risk in lending. And so if your neighborhood was redlined because of the demographic composition of that neighborhood, you were denied a mortgage. Uh, you could not create that dream of home ownership, first in cities and then later in suburbs. Eventually, redlining was banned. And then many other different types of, of subtle forms of discrimination continued. Something in the 50s and 60s was called blockbusting. Blockbusting was a real estate practice where uh, literally block by block, they were, quote, uh, busted apart, meaning that white families were encouraged to move as, quote, a black family moved on the main street. So a real estate agent would encourage one black family to move on to an all-white street. Uh, from there, the real estate agents uh, who were coordinating with the banks would then knock on every door on the street and say, look, there's now a black family on your street. What's going to happen? Your property values are going to go down. You better get out while you can. All of Western Baltimore was blockbusted. 
most of West Philly was blockbusted, where gener- like literally a whole generation of, of white Americans in the 50s were encouraged to move out because black families were moving in. This was all facilitated by banks and, and by the private market without any regulation by government. You know, the, the, the contemporary version today is racial steering. The Internet's helped a little bit, but racial steering would occur when, uh, how do you get information on where to buy a house? You generally need a real estate agent. And that real estate agent then steers you or suggests which neighborhoods to go to. And so there, there's a whole industry built on, on what the risk of lending is. And so banks would want to avoid risk when they give money out for a mortgage. And so uh, there was a perception in the market that to keep risk down, you would have to keep out first black people and then later Latino people. And so by steering people in, these are the subtle forms of segregation that evolve and continue in, in different ways still today. That is fascinating. I I knew that real estate agents were, you know, um, there was some things of like lending and how that happened. But I did not, I didn't know about the like explicit act of blockbusting where you literally manipulating the housing market by utilizing racism for profit. I mean, yeah, it's it's exactly that. It's it's racism for profit. And, and for the listeners out there, there's a there's really a landmark book called Blockbusting in in Baltimore by Orser. It's 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 a great history. It uses Baltimore as a case study, but it's a story we saw in in, in many big cities throughout the Midwest and the Northeast. Yeah. If I was say, you know, if I was an older person who, or who's listening to this podcast who was white and I wanted to think about moving, is there anything like is there anything I could personally do to sort of stop this? Is it a systemic issue? And if it is a systemic issue, like what sort of changes would we be like looking to make to potentially kind of reverse this off, this sort of action that's been happening? Great, great. Yeah, great question. Great question, Caleb. I think we need to get back to as a society to define what our values are and what is important. We have to decide as a, as a society, do we want an integrated society? Do we want an equal access to opportunity type of society? And I think we've, we, we politically, we've lost sight of some of those values. And I say that only in the fact of the observation of these are our residential patterns right now that we see. We do see great segregation persist still today, despite all of the efforts that have had some success and some not having success. And so, I mean, I think it begins with that dialogue and those values, but these are hard problems. Some of it has to do with creating more opportunities economically. Some of this also has to do with globalization. That's a big word, but, you know, the globalization of, of, of the labor force has meant that the types of jobs that, that once created the middle class are no longer here. And so there's a multifaceted approach that, that probably has some to do with economic development, some to do with just realigning political values. But it's definitely something that, you know, when you hear the president say bad people are moving to the suburbs, it really challenges and calls into question the reality of, of suburbs because, you know, two out of three people in the U.S. live in the suburbs, work in the suburbs, vote in the suburbs, play in the suburbs. And so we are a suburban country. And when people look around, that's not what they see. You know, suburbs are no longer white middle class, white picket fence, all, all that kind of image of, of what the Leave it to Beaver suburb was. Today's suburbs, they're diverse. Today, more immigrants settle directly in suburbs than in central cities. If we think about the big historic immigrant hubs in the country. And so when we think about this, I I, I frame this because suburbs today are melting pots. 
And they have rich people, they have poor people, they have middle-class people. And they are as diverse as their big cities are right now. And so now, politically, when you, you know, a diversity of people and a diversity of background brings a diversity of political values, of political preferences. What I'm hearing from you is basically that, because, yeah, there's a lot of talking about sorting of urban areas being increasingly Democrat, increasingly of one sort, and then the rural areas being increasingly Republican, but these suburbs are becoming more mixed. And I guess when our president is saying bad people will be in the suburbs, then there is sort of a dog whistle in there about it being specifically black people or people of color that's something that is already happening but they're not obviously bad people so people are already sort of experiencing a diversification of the suburbs and i mean i th- i feel like that sounds like a good step to me and i i want to i want to see if i can touch on this lightly but this may have to wait for a second episode because obviously we've got the term white flight and all this sort of moving out of the cities but now we have something that is a very common problem these days, which is gentrification, which almost feels like a bit of the opposite. And that's to do with how, what these cities that were being sort of deconstructed are coming in and becoming increasing wealth, increasingly undiverse, and sort of the cultures being removed and practices surrounding that. Is there a relation between gentrification and white flight? You're right. Big question. Happy to come back and chat about that too. But I mean, I think quickly, if we think about, you know, let's define gentrification. It's the spatial process of displacement meaning that people in neighborhoods that have been there a long time are forced to move. They're so-called displaced, and they go somewhere else. So it's a migration, okay? And, and white flight is another type of migration. And oftentimes, gentrification has a race and class lens to it. They are quite interrelated. And so we tend to see gentrification in urban neighborhoods that typically go through many different economic evolutions. And so neighborhoods continue to evolve and change over time. They decline, then reinvestment happens, that reinvestment happens, and what do we see? You know, a great example is the South End, you know, neighborhood that touches our, our campus here at Northeastern. South End is a fascinating neighborhood. I haven't done this tour recently, but I have one of a, a quite well-known among our student body for doing tours around the South End. And uh, they usually involve nice little culinary stops here and there too. But, you know, the South End is is an old neighborhood, one of Boston's original neighborhoods. And it's gone through many different cycles of decline and growth. And so, you know, walking and touring the neighborhood, you can see evidence of that. You know, originally it was an old Irish Catholic neighborhood. In the 10s and 20s, black residents that had recently migrated settled in the South End and brought with it a rich history of, of, of art and music. Different periods of time, Jewish people settled into the South End. We moved to the 60s and 70s. It was largely disinvested and abandoned. Who moved in? Young gay men. And then eventually South End becomes Boston's gay neighborhood, if you will. And then you, you look into what the South End has evolved into over the past couple of decades. It's been one that's had a lot of investment from private real estate. And so many different pockets of historic residents and, and their grandkids, kids of all those generations I've just described, who have been there a long time. New investment brings new housing. New housing brings new commercial and some of this sounds like a chicken and egg. If we build it, they will come. But the, what type of housing has been built? It's no surprise, uh, luxury housing. I like to start the tour when we think about this, this history of the South End because there are about a dozen old Catholic churches in the South End neighborhood that have been converted into luxury condos. Fascinating. And they're churches. They're literally churches 
Um, so they're still they're still like the structure of a church. Oh yes, it's an odd phenomenon. And so when the demand for housing is so high in a city like Boston, you'll make use of any type of infrastructure to create new housing. It's also sort of an avant-garde way, but everything about the history there, I think, has been preserved. But uh, it's an interesting phenomenon because it's one we haven't seen, but it happened you know, over the past decade in the South End. With that brings the redevelopment of the far end of the South End, uh, which pushed out residents. And what do we know about that new end? We have luxury apartments there. We have million-dollar condos there. We have an old St. Patrick's Church that is now a condo. We have Whole Foods. We have more Starbucks. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sort of pointing the finger and blaming the, the real estate because, you know, your real estate spectators look at where they can invest. And so, again, it, it's not Starbucks' fault or Whole Foods' fault, if you will, that gentrification happened. We as a community, as a city, have not figured out a way to provide affordable housing for everybody that needs it. And that's gentrification. I mean, part of that is what gentrification is. And so it's an incredibly expensive neighborhood, and it has lots of poor people in it too. What happens? Here's the connection to white flight. City of Boston probably has, back of the napkin, has a small middle class, but most of the middle class lives outside of the city, not in the city. And that's largely a question of access to um, a housing stock that is more affordable. Demand is high everywhere. When demand's so high, the pressures for gentrification even go higher. So you see this in Boston, New York, San Francisco being the three key places where demand to be in the city is greater than the supply of housing available. So it pushes people out and it displaces people. Yeah, and obviously talking about affordable housing is an entire episode series of podcasts. So we probably we definitely don't have enough time to get into that, but... Um, just to finish things off, I think bringing this on a personal level would be great. If I was an individual listening to this podcast and I'm, I'm hearing about all this stuff, is there any, like, again, is there anything I can do on my own personal day to day to sort of help fix this issue? It, it could just be, you know, talking to others about it. It could be, you know, spending in different areas. It could be looking in certain places that I normally wouldn't look to live, but like, what are the, what are the personal things I could do in my life? Yeah, personally, I, I think is, is students at a university. Uh, all of you have chosen to study at, at an urban university. We have many diverse and rich neighborhoods. I say rich in terms of culturally rich neighborhoods around us. Um, get involved in the community. Uh, learn about these issues. We have a phenomenal urban studies minor that the College of Social Sciences and Humanities offers. That's a shameless plug. And we've got many great faculty who study urban issues. I'm in very good company with quite a number of faculty that have an expertise in urban issues all over the world. Um, and they're here at Northeastern. But I would say get it, to the degree that you're able and willing and ready to, to get involved to make a difference, do that. Think about a way to volunteer at a community organization here in Boston. Think about a way to, to get involved and mobilize. Um, you know, we've had, we've had the highest turnout in this election than any other time in, in, in the past you know, century, okay? So, you know, not that this is just about voting, but it's also about organizing around issues. And, and oftentimes where people get their start in local government. When, when you want to organize, advocate, um, get involved, you know, think about an issue you care about and there's an organization out there working on it to move it forward for social justice. 
And so, um, you know, that could be housing, that could be uh, transportation. Take a look at our city council here in Boston. Take a look at, you know, we were going to have a, we perhaps might have a, a an interesting mayoral race in Boston next year. Michelle Wu has already declared her candidacy for, for running for mayor. We're not sure if Walsh will, will run again or not. But, you know, I, I would just encourage you to learn about the issues and then think about how you might get involved in that. And you, you don't, again, have to get involved to change the world. But if you look at any kind of, you know, I, I'm thinking of, this might sound like a cliche, but it's, it's, it's really not. How did Barack Obama start his career? It was in community organizing on the south side of Chicago, caring about the, the issues that impact people. I find that many of our students are, are quite interested in you know, the role that Northeastern plays or other urban universities play in, in the relationship of uh, in neighborhoods they have around them. It's a complex relationship that requires lots of context and nuance for understanding because you know, universities are, are both can contribute to some of the pressures in the neighborhoods, but they can also create economic opportunities in ways that really require us to, to take a deep look at. And so, you know, there, there's actually a great body of, of scholarly work and literature on the roles that universities play as economic development engines. But I mean, I, I would just encourage, you know, to wrap up here, I mean, encourage students to to learn about the issues and then find an organization to get involved with and, and, and take it from there. See what happens. Thank you. And I, I, I just want to pop in quickly as well to give a bit of uh, what I feel is at least it's, it's something that's important to me and what I feel like with has been a barrier for my political motivation in the local areas that certainly when I feel like as a college student going into Boston, it's very easy to not actually feel like a resident of Boston. It's like, Oh, I'm, I, my cohort is Northeastern university. I don't, live in Boston. I live as a Northeastern student. And I don't think that should let people stop themselves from getting involved on these local issues. Just because you're maybe still registered in Maryland, like I am, and voting in Maryland, that doesn't mean you shouldn't sit down and start interacting with the people that you are actually going to be living around and near for four years. And that's not Northeastern students. That is the people in the Boston community. So I definitely want to second that idea of getting out there and getting involved. Yeah, get yeah, get involved. Get get involved and um if you don't know how, I, I know there are many people who are interested and, and open to uh, making those introductions, building that network. Yeah, I just encourage everybody to to think creatively about how to do it during the pandemic because it it is very much still possible to keep physical distance, have a mask on and you know make a difference. Yeah. And if you want to learn more, more there's uh, several classes taught on campus taught by uh, Professor Vicino that you can take and definitely get even more in-depth in content like this. But I think that is all we have for today. Um, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, once again, I'm Caleb Dreisman. I'm the podcast director at WRBB Radio, and I've been talking with Professor Vicino about uh, white flight and the effects of movements in the cities and suburbs. Thank you so much for joining me. Great. Thank you. Be well. This episode of WRBB's New Politics was hosted by Caleb Dreisman. This recording wouldn't be possible without the help of our podcast director and Andrew Sendry, WRBB's general manager. This episode of New Politics was mixed and edited by our audio engineers. Special thanks to the WRBB leadership staff, Northeastern University, and Northeastern's student activity fee for funding this podcast. Our theme music is Owl by Mari Getty. 
Head to wrbbradio.org where you can find the latest episodes of all of our podcasts, listen to our internet live stream, and read up on the latest music reviews. And make sure to follow us on all social media at WRBBRadio. Thanks for tuning in.